The following message is part of the preaching ministry of Berlin Baptist Church in Sally, South Carolina. We pray God's richest blessings for you as you study His Word. Find your place in your Bible this morning in the book of Micah, chapter 5. We're going to pick up just after the first sentence in verse 5, chapter 5, verse 5 as we discuss God's call to the city. Now, this is something that's really interesting, the timing. I'm always uh, amazed. I know I shouldn't be, but every time I see something where maybe I've planned, all right, I'm preaching this book, and so this is how it's broken up, so this is how it's separated into weeks, and, and I don't know what's going to be going on on those days. I don't know what's going to be happening in the world and so every time something in current events or something in my schedule of events that I'm a part of, every time something there coincides with something that I've already put on a calendar to preach, it always kind of amazes me how God puts those things together. And so, you know, we live in a culture now where one of my former seminary professors called it um, moral vertigo. Everything's upside down. Everything's out of balance, uh, morally speaking, in our culture. You know, people are calling wrong right and calling right wrong. And things that we at one point took for granted as, well, this is just how it is. This is normal. This is right. Well, those things are, are all called into question now by a very vocal minority. And I, I want to say that clearly because I, I heard a message Sunday night from Reverend Tony Evans from Oak Cliff Bible Fellowship out in Texas, and he preached to the Southern Baptist Convention on Sunday night. And I would encourage you, if you uh, can go on the Internet and just Google search uh, SBC 2021 Nashville, Tennessee, Tony Evans. Just put those words in a search engine and find that sermon. I believe you would all be served well as I was hearing that on Sunday night. And, and his... His main premise, without going into I don't want to spoil, if you want to listen to it, I don't want to spoil the surprise, but his main illustration and premise behind, he preached Matthew 28, 16 through 20. He preached the Great Commission. But here's his illustration in, in a real brief form. The church has put on the uniform of this side or that side or the culture and, and not remain in its proper place he used a football analogy. You have two teams on a field, and they're battling one another, but there's a third team involved, and that's the team of officials, right? And so you have two teams plus a bunch of officials, and the officials are supposed to be impartial to either team, but they're supposed to bring some regulation and some principles, a foundation of rules and norms from the home office. Uh, the home office for the officials for the NFL is in New York. And so they get together. They have a rule book. You see where this is going? They have a book that guides them. And they're supposed to take the, the principles and the rules in that book and apply it to the game on the field. But what would happen if the officials were um, partial to one side or the other? Or maybe they forgot what uniform they had on and they wanted to put on the uniform of one of the, the teams because they liked that team. Well... You, you can imagine the chaos that would ensue. The church is supposed to be 
bringing uh, regulations, rules, direction, influence from the home office. And we're guided by the book that was written by the master. And yet we have forgotten our place. We've forgotten what team we're on, who we represent. And so God's call to the city has to do with uh, His people fulfilling their rightful place as His people and not being partial to this side or that side or uh, this team or that team or this culture or this segment of culture. Uh, one quote that I heard um, on Tuesday from the outgoing Southern Baptist Convention president who's a pastor of a church in Durham, North Carolina. He said, for example, uh, you have politics that you could pick a side. You have all these different things where people in the church could pick a side. And, and he said, when, when politics, when the church gets in bed with politics, the church gets pregnant, but the offspring doesn't look like the Father in heaven because we've lost our place. We, we've forgotten that we don't represent this team or that team. We represent God. And so God's call to this city in the book of Micah and our city and our, uh, our families, our, ourselves as individuals, His call is to remember who we are, remember whose we are, remember who we represent. We don't represent anything on this earth. We represent the kingdom of heaven. And we're supposed to influence this culture for the kingdom of heaven. Does that make sense? That's our place as followers of Christ. There's been all kinds of talk about... Uh, I, I read an article here. I'm not going to read the whole thing just for time's sake. But 44 years ago, in 1977, a New York columnist wrote an article for the Daily News that he called Mean Streets, X-Rated Streets. And he was doing a study about New York City. And there were statistics that he threw out. Granted, they're 44 years old. But even back then, in the mid-70s, he said there were 400,000 alcoholics, 500,000 narcotics users, 300,000 compulsive gamblers. There had been 658,000-plus felonies during the previous year. All these statistics about one city. And there's cities all over our nation that have similar stories. He called Times Square the sewer of the universe. He came to this, inclusion, this conclusion. He said, of course you gave up on New York politicians long ago. They're pathetic and embarrassing. What's worse than abdication of political leadership in New York is the abdication of spiritual leadership. And then he goes on against the Catholic Church and how they're, the leaders of that church, in his opinion, in New York, were doing nothing to help the situation talking about their leadership was poor because they're not uh, sensitive to those around them and, and upholding the principles set forth in Scripture. But here's the thing. He called New York a great city when it used to put a great emphasis on spiritual values. So I wonder how we could find similarities for any other city in our country. If we emphasize spiritual values, perhaps our cities would look more like outposts of the kingdom of heaven rather than, than sewers of immorality. Right? So God uses His Word as He always does in this particular prophecy. It's a message of warning, but it's also a message of hope. So we're going to read today, uh, pick up where we left off two weeks ago, in chapter 5 and verse 5, 
and we're going to go to the end of chapter 6 in kind of a summary fashion, and we're going to see what God's call to the city is, and I will zero in for you uh, one particular verse that I think you might find familiar, Micah chapter 6 and verse 8. What does the Lord require of His people? That's the theme of this passage, Micah chapter 6, verse 8. So we're going to read, and when we get there, I suspect you will recognize that verse. But let's begin reading Ma uh, Micah chapter 5, verse 5, the second sentence of verse 5. Here's what God says through Micah in His Word. When the Assyrian invades our land... When he tramples on our citadels, then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight leaders of men. They will shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword, the land of Nimrod at its entrances. And he will deliver us from the Assyrian when he attacks our land and when he tramples our territory. Then the remnant of Jacob will be among many peoples like dew from the Lord, like showers on vegetation which do not wait for man or delay for the sons of men. The remnant of Jacob will be among the nations, among many peoples, like a lion among the beasts of the forest, like a young lion among flocks of sheep, which, if he passes through, tramples down and tears, and there is none to rescue. Your hand will be lifted up against your adversaries, and all your enemies will be cut off. It will be in that day, declares the Lord, that I will cut off your horses from among you and destroy your chariots. I will also cut off the cities of your land and tear down all your fortifications. I will cut off sorceries from your hand, and you will have fortune tellers no more. I will cut off your carved images and your sacred pillars from among you, so that you will no longer bow down to the work of your hands. I will root out your ashram from among you and destroy your cities. And I will execute vengeance in anger and wrath on the nations which have not obeyed. Hear now what the Lord is saying. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Listen, you mountains, to the indictment of the Lord and you enduring foundations of the earth because the Lord has a case against His people even with Israel. He will dispute. My people, what have I done to you? And how have I wearied you? Answer me. Indeed, I brought you up from the land of Egypt and ransomed you from the house of slavery. And I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. My people, remember now, what Balak king of Moab counseled, and what Balaam son of Beor answered him, from Shethim to Gilgal, so that you might know the righteous acts of the Lord. With what shall I come to the Lord and bow myself before the God on high? Shall I come to him with burnt offerings, with yearling calves? Does the Lord take delight in thousands of rams and ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I present my firstborn for my rebellious acts, the fruit of my body, for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, to love kindness, to walk humbly with your God. The voice of the Lord will call to the city, and it is sound wisdom to fear your name. Hear, O tribe, who has appointed its time? Is there yet a man in the wicked house, along with treasures of wickedness and a short measure that is cursed? Can I justify wicked scales and a bag of deceptive weights? For the rich men of the city are full of violence. Her residents speak lies, and their tongue is deceitful in their mouth. 
so also I will make you sick, striking you down, desolating you because of your sins. You will eat, but you will not be satisfied, and your vileness will be in your midst. You will try to remove for safekeeping, but you will not preserve anything. And what you do preserve, I will give to the sword. You will sow, but you will not reap. You will tread the olive, but will not anoint yourself with oil. And the grapes, but you will not drink wine. The statutes of Omri and all the works of the house of Ahab are observed, and in their devices you walk. Therefore I will give you up for destruction and your inhabitants for derision, and you will bear the reproach of my people. Father, in Jesus' name I pray that you would speak clearly to our hearts today. God, I pray that you would speak through me, even though I am completely insufficient for this task. Please speak to us, Lord. Help us understand and help us obey. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me give you a little background of this indictment, so to speak. From the mid part of, of chapter 5, verse 5, to the end of chapter 5, you get a little background of this indictment. There's a balance between future hope and future judgment. You start off in hope as the text begins, and you see that there's uh, going to be deliverance. God is going to deliver His people from the Assyrians. He says that uh, in the first part there in, in verse 5, that He's going to... Uh, shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword. So in other words, you see God's going to empower them. He's going to deliver His people against the Assyrians. And then He gives some promises. The remnant of Jacob is going to be like dew from the Lord. They're going to be like a lion among the beasts. The enemies of God's people are going to be cut off. You see that there clearly in the text. But then, as soon as you hear this message of future hope, there's also some future judgment attached to it. Because remember... What are these people doing that's so wrong? They're worshiping idols. They're not following the Lord. They're content in their sin. They're not re recognizing that there are, as we've said many times in these past weeks, consequences for our actions. They're refusing accountability. And God is calling them to account. So the future... Hope is there, but the future judgment says that God is going to cut off their horses, destroy their chariots. You see this uh, in the text here, uh, beginning in verse uh, 7, and you see the, the remnant of Jacob, and you see them talking about dew from the Lord, the remnant of Jacob, and you, you keep reading, you think, think, okay, things are going pretty good. Uh, your hand will be lifted up against your adversaries, your enemies will be cut off. And you get down to verse 10, and then you start to see Everything change. Your horses are going to be cut off. Your chariots are going to be destroyed. Your sorceries and fortune tellers will be cut off. Your carved images, your sacred pillars. In other words, God is saying to His people, I'm putting an end to this idolatry nonsense. I'm getting rid of it all. He even says, I'll cut off your carved images, your sacred pillars, and then He uses this word, I will root out your Asherim. An ashram was a wooden carved post of sorts, and, and they would put that's the, the means by which they would worship these carved images and these idols. It was a focal point. And God says, I'm going to just destroy all of that. I'm going to destroy your cities, he says, verse 14. And then he says, I will execute vengeance 
in anger and wrath, and don't miss this word, on the disobedient nations. You know what that is? Even as God is declaring His judgment, He's still reminding them, if you obey, you can avoid this. In other words, what's, what's the message to us? Yes, you, you've done wrong. We've all done wrong. We've all gone down wrong paths from time to time. But if you repent, if you turn away from your sin and turn to Jesus, there's forgiveness. There's mercy. There's grace. There's love. There's kindness. There's salvation. If you just turn to Jesus. And He says there in verse 15, I'm going to execute vengeance on the nations which have not obeyed. So, let's do a bit of personal application real quick here before we move to chapter 6. Our nation, have we obeyed? Now, I'm not saying there aren't pockets of people who are seeking the Lord, following the Lord, doing their, their level best to, to follow Jesus and be obedient to His Word. But as a whole, as a nation, I believe we're, we're missing the mark. I believe we're going down the wrong path. I believe that uh, uh, in, in great numbers, greater numbers, we have uh, forsaken the book that's given to us by our Lord. We've forsaken His Word. Our leadership is not consulting godly principles to rule. They are consulting their own opinions and what serves themselves the best, it appears. It would appear. So God says, I will execute vengeance in anger and wrath on the disobedient nations. That's the background of the indictment. But look at the indictment itself. God's indictment of His people, beginning in chapter 6. And this is really encapsulated kind of like bookends. In chapter 6, the first five verses, and then verses 9 through 12, they kind of uh, bookend this one particular concept that we're going to get to in just a second. God's indictment, He says, hear what the Lord is saying because the Lord has a case against His people. So God's going to bring some accusations here. And if you read the text there in the first five verses of chapter 6, what's the first accusation? The people have forgotten the Lord. They've forgotten their God. He's done nothing but good to them. And then he lists some of those things. If you remember verse 4, I brought you up out of the land of Egypt. I ransomed you from the house of slavery. I sent godly people to lead you. Moses, Aaron, Miriam, I've sent you godly leadership. I've brought you out of slavery. And yet, what have you done to follow me after I've been so kind to you? The voice of the Lord is calling to the city. And verse 9 says, it's wise to fear Him. You see that in verse 9? The voice of the Lord will call to the city. It is sound wisdom to fear your name. So the second accusation is the people have become increasingly corrupt. And so as you follow this text down a little bit, look at the descriptions here uh, beginning at verse 9. Is there a man in the wicked house? Treasures of wickedness, going on to verse 10, on to verse 11. There are uh, treasures of wickedness, a short measure, wicked scales, a bag of deceptive weights. In other words, people are, are being dishonest in their dealings with one another. 
because they're cheating one another. That's what dishonest scales is talking about. Deceptive weights, you know. Oh, I want to buy a pound of this, whatever, and they the weights are wrong. So they're you know they're they're stealing from each other basically. Okay, they're ripping each other off. Rich men, the Bible says, are full of violence. The residents speak lies. Their tongues are deceitful. Verse twelve. Verse thirteen. Compare the state of God's people with the state of people today. Were we once a godly nation? I'd like to think so. I'd like to think that in our 240 plus years of existence, there was a time when I believe it was closer to the beginning of the nation where we treasured godly principles. We treasured uh, the Bible as our uh, guiding direction. We had been richly blessed by God, but now we can start to see more and more similarities between our country and the nation of Israel here. That's the focus of this text because we're in danger of judgment because there's the same sins going on now as were going on then. And So if there's the same sins going on, why could we possibly think that the same judgment wouldn't follow that? Right? Doesn't that make sense? But again, we've forgotten there are consequences for our actions. Think about notable Christian figures in the history of America. Christopher Columbus confessed a deep faith in Christ. The Puritans endured great hardship just to establish a Christian society. George Washington was a devout believer in Christ. But those weren't the only names. There were also some notable unbelievers in the history of America. Thomas Jefferson was a deist. He did not hold orthodox Christian beliefs. Benjamin Franklin was a skeptical unbeliever, although he still saw some value in prayer. At the Constitutional Convention in May of 1787, let me read this quote to you. In the beginning of the contest with Britain, when we were sensible of danger, we had daily prayers in this room for divine protection. Our prayers, sir, were heard and they were graciously answered. I have lived, sir, a long time and the longer I live, the more convincing proofs I see of this great truth that God governs in the affairs of men. And if a sparrow cannot fall to the ground without his notice, is it probable that an empire could rise without his aid? That's Benjamin Franklin. One who was not uh, even a believer but saw the value of prayer when it came to the affairs of men and, and everything for that matter. So the indictment here is that in our situation... Could we expect different treatment from God if we're engaged in the same sinful behavior? I would say no. We should not expect different treatment. So after we see all that's going on and all the things we've engaged in as a nation and how we've veered away from the path, just as God's people did in this prophecy that Micah brings us, what is God's requirement of His people? And I want you to look very carefully as this is the, the main portion of this message, look very carefully at chapter 6, verses 6 
through 8. Verses 6 through 8. What does God require of His people? First of all, what do people think about that question? Look at the questions that are being asked in verses 6 and 7. This is what people think. What do you want, God, that we're, all, no, that we're not already doing? I mean, aren't we doing enough already? Do you want burnt offerings with yearling calves? Do you delight in thousands of rams or uh, 10,000 rivers of oil? Should I bring my firstborn child for my rebellion? Should I bring my children in exchange for my sin? Do you see that in 6 and 7? It's almost as if the people are, are asking, What are we supposed to do, God? How much do we give up to make up for what we've done? And then there's verse 8. What does God require? He has told you what is good. In fact, He requires nothing new that He hasn't always required. Do justice. Love kindness. Walk humbly with your God. Or circumspectly, which means uh, careful to consider all circumstances and possible consequences. In other words, uh, exercise some prudent thought, some prudent behavior. This is what God requires. Justice, kindness and mercy, humility. Pay attention to circumstances and consequences. So if we don't do that, even though that's what God requires, and it's nothing new, what judgment would we expect? Well, the Bible tells us in verses 13 through 16 at the end of chapter 6, what is God prepared to do if His people will not heed His word? Beginning in verse 13, I'll make you sick. I'll strike you down. I'll desolate you because of your sins. You'll eat, but you won't be satisfied. Your vileness will be in your midst. You'll try to escape and be safe, but you won't preserve anything. And what you do preserve, I'll give it to the sword. Look at verse 15. Basically, God says, all your efforts are going to be pointless because you're trying to solve a spiritual problem with material means, and it doesn't work that way. Spiritual problems require spiritual solutions. And spiritual solutions come from the Father. They don't come from our intellect. We're not smart enough to figure it out. God solves the problem for us. Verse 15 says, You're going to sow, but you won't reap. You're going to tread out the olives, but you won't have any oil. You're going to tread out the grapes, but you're not going to have any wine. In other words, you're going to do all this work because you think you can work your way out of your problem, and God says it doesn't, it doesn't work that way. When will we realize we can't work our way out of our problems because our problems are spiritual in nature, and therefore we have to seek our spiritual Father to give us what we need to solve the problem. We don't have the solutions in and of ourselves your work will not yield any benefit. God says in the final verse of this chapter, I see the idols you worship. Do, do we honestly think God is blind? That He can't see and understand 
all the different ways we dishonor Him, all the ways we disobey Him? Do we think that God's not paying attention? That He's not big enough to see everything going on and that, that we're going to put one over on Him? There, there's things that another human being on this planet may not know about us. God knows every bit of it. Nothing is hidden from His sight. The statutes of Omri, the works of the house of Ahab are observed. They're observed by God. And he says, the devices in which you walk. And so I'm going to give you up for destruction, your inhabitants for derision. You are going to bear the reproach of my people. Let me just um, try to conclude all this in a way that's understandable. What are, we, what are we supposed to be doing? What's our real purpose? This has been uh, more clear to me, I think, this week, and I appreciate so much the good and the bad of going to a, a national denominational meeting and uh, enjoying the good parts and, then, and observing the, the not-so-good parts, you know, watching how people relate to one another. Largely, pastors... In our denomination, 17,000 in one room. I saw one, I try to, this is entertaining for me in the midst of all this. I, I look at my phone, I, I look through some social media, what are people saying about this meeting I'm sitting in? What are some other people's opinions? And one, one person on Wednesday morning during the convention meeting, one person put on social media, it's as if, some of these pastors, I'm paraphrasing, it's as if some of these pastors are behaving exactly like the church members they talk about. And I thought to myself, well, isn't that a, a keen observation? You ever been to a business meeting with 17,000 people? There's a few different opinions in the room. And yet, pastors who are supposed to be leading leading by example, will walk up to a microphone in a room with 17,000 people in it and act a fool. Not, not sound Christian, not facial expression-wise, not look Christian. And they're somewhere in this country. They're, they're leading a church. It just kind of makes you scratch your head a little bit. And I, I'm, I'm kind of proud of the fact that in all in 18 years of uh, going to different convention meetings statewide and, and on a national level, I have yet to step up to a microphone and say a word because I just I'm too busy listening to what everybody else is saying and and thinking to myself, great day. I'm glad that's not me standing up there saying that and sounding like that. And I got enough problems on my own. I don't need to let everybody else in the world see them. So when I when I go through an experience like that and, and I get some clarity about watching. Uh, did you know that this week there were more media pass applications for this meeting than there have been for this meeting in the past 20 years? Because there was a rumor, hey, there might be some contention, there might be some arguments, let's go look, take pictures and write it in the newspaper. Let's go see how these so-called Christians behave. So let me just... Let me just read this quote from a 
Christian pastor, commentator, who is he's now in heaven, about this passage. James Montgomery Boyce writes, The world is waiting for Christian people to be Christian people. You say, I don't believe that. I try to witness to my non-Christian friends and they don't even want to hear about Christianity. Well, that is true. They do not want to be urged to become like you. But they do expect you to be what you profess to be. The world looks for far more from us than we give them credit for. So when I read a statement like that, from someone who wrote that 50 years ago, the world looks for far more from us than we give them credit for. So it takes me right back to the theme of this passage today. Chapter 6, verse 8. He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Justice, kindness, humility, repeat. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this message from God's Word. For more information on Berlin Baptist Church, we invite you to explore our website at www.berlinchurchsc.org.